Last week, uh, we were in Isaiah 40, and the central theme of the message and text was comfort. God spoke a message of, of comfort to the people of Israel and to us through the words of the prophet. This week, the central theme of the message and text is justice. Now, justice has, has almost become a buzzword in recent history, particularly when combined with the word social. So often when we hear the word justice today, we think of social justice. And the term social justice will evoke in each of us a different reaction. Some of us will champion it and some of us will be triggered by it. So what is justice according to Isaiah, according to our text this morning, and according to God? In Exodus 26.30, the word justice is used in the plan for the tabernacle, the, the blueprint that God revealed from heaven. Using that as the analogy, God has a blueprint for human existence. He has a plan, and, and justice is when that plan is being followed. When God speaks through his prophet Isaiah about justice, he is speaking about more than legal correctness. To God, injustice is more than just political and social dysfunction. A just world, according to Isaiah, is human society as God means it to be. How he wants it, with no corrupting idolatries. We're not, we're not very good at giving up our idols, are we? Idolatry is, is a human problem. It's not just an, an ancient problem, right? Often when we think of, of idols, we think of like this huge thing of like Baal out in somewhere and like whatever, right? But it's not just an ancient problem. Idols are not just images and, and golden figurines and fertility charms. They aren't just a, a physical representation of some other god. Ezekiel speaks of people taking idols into their hearts. Idols don't have to be actual images to work their spell on the human psyche. They can be internalized into our hearts. If we can see, understand, and accept that an idol is any heart-level substitution for God, then we can see that the modern world is infested with idols. It was John Calvin who once said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. We are continually finding and manufacturing things that we put in front of God in our lives. Idolatry is a human problem. It is a modern problem, and it is a Christian problem. Over and over again in the Old Testament, we see God calling out to his people to leave their idols, to repent from their idol worship, and to once again turn to God with their worship and to put him first. I mean, just look at the first commandment, right? You shall have no other gods before me. This is the greatest commandment. And this is not a command given only to those who do not believe that God is real, but also and particularly to his followers, which tells us, reminds us, points out to us, however uncomfortable it may be, that we are prone to chase idols, that we are prone to follow the idols that we have manufactured in our hearts. And when we chase idols, when we follow the things that we love over the things of God or that God loves, then we are pursuing and causing injustice. 
We're not functioning as individuals or a society in the way that God intended us to, that he wants us to. And so instead of justice, our idolatry leads to injustice. And there are plenty of examples of injustice in our world today that we could draw from to prove this point. For some of us, we'll look at the low-hanging fruit of our current social and political climate, and man, I get it. It's thrown in front of our faces on, on a daily basis. But the issues that we face today, the issues of poverty, racism, illiteracy, and human misery in all of its forms are not new issues for this time or even for this generation. Though it by no means excuses the injustice we see around us or makes allowances for it, it is important to understand that injustice has been a staple of human existence. History makes this incredibly clear. Injustice is not just a Republican problem or a Democrat problem or an American problem. It is a human problem. History is full of slavery, genocide, poverty, plagues, destruction, wars, and corruption. It is full of injustice. Idolatry has led to injustice since sin entered the human heart. Is there a clearer example of this than that of Cain killing his brother Abel out of pride and jealousy, his own idolatry leading to the unjust killing of his brother, the first murder? History is full of injustice, and we see this played out in this chapter before our text this morning. Today our text is Isaiah 42, but we're going to start this morning in Isaiah 41, and we're going to read verses 25 to 27. Isaiah 41, 25 to 27. I have stirred up one from the north, and he comes, one from the rising sun who calls on my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if you were, as if you were a potter treading the clay. Who told of this from the beginning so we could know, or beforehand so we could say he was right? No one told of this. No one foretold it. No one hears any words from you. I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good news. In this passage, God is predicting the rise of Cyrus the Great of Persia. Cyrus, dude, Cyrus was a stinking wrecking ball. He was a conqueror, and, and he conquered, and, and when he conquered, he wasn't worried about who got hurt along the way. He was after what he was after. He wanted his name to echo throughout the ages. Cyrus, as we read in, in this passage, trampled on rulers as on mortar, as a potter treads on clay. Cyrus stepped on people, man. He squashed the opposition. He pursued his idol of power and crushed all those who opposed him. A classic example of idolatry resulting in injustice. Now, pastor, you may be thinking, dude, I'm nothing like Cyrus, right? I'm not trampling on anybody. I'm not conquering anything. I'm not destroying civilizations so that I may pursue my idols. And true enough, we may not have any Cyruses listening to this message, but as we heard earlier, each of us has idols. Each of us manufactures idols, and each of us pursues these idols, and that pursuit leaves in its wake injustice. Even when what we think we are pursuing is itself, from our understanding and perspective, an answer to injustice, we still leave injustice in our wake. For as we realized when we were in 1 Peter, we cannot bring justice perfectly. 
One commentary I read put it this way, and, and I thought the description was, was very fitting, very apt. Everything we do is laced with poisons that we cannot detect in time. Everything we do is laced with poisons we cannot detect in time. We may not be intentionally trying to ruin things. We may be intentionally trying to improve things, to make things better, but there are poisons that are the result of our sin that we just don't even realize are being applied and we do not detect them in time. I'm reminded of, of when I was watching a fantastic documentary on Netflix titled The Social Dilemma. Watch it. Like all of you, watch it. It's fantastic, enlightening, pretty disturbing. But something that we should all understand about social media and the internet, the, the social dilemma, it's fantastic. But anyway, that said, in this documentary, one of the co-creators of the Facebook like button, so one of the guys that came up with that thumb that you hit on Facebook, hopefully you've, you've hit that thumb on this video if you're watching on, uh, on the stream, but it's that, that little thumb button. The guy who, who was the co-creator of that, he said that it was intended to spread positivity. That's why they did it. They made this thing so they could spread positivity. That, that was its purpose and its function. That was why it was created, and he said that when they created it, they had no idea that it could instead be something that would lead to depression and even suicide. They had no idea that the like button would be twisted in such a way that if people didn't get enough likes on a post or a picture, they would become depressed and feel dejected. They had no clue that they would be creating a tool that would become a measurement of the person's value and the value of their thoughts and ideas and talent. The more likes, the better you are, is the, the thought process. No likes and, and nobody cares about what you think or what you look like or what you've done. It was supposed to promote positivity, not lead people to despair. Even with our best intentions, we spread poison. Every human plan of justice, every human plan for salvation is unwittingly rooted in our own idolatrous dream of what we could be and should be. We can be good enough, we think. This plan is a good one. It accomplishes all that we want it to, we hope. If only we try hard enough, we can succeed, we tell ourselves. We, we can do it. We, we can do it. We can conquer this sin, but the problem is the sin does not discriminate. We will turn what is meant for good into evil. Sin has corrupted our hearts and minds, and so it also has corrupted our social constructs. Even our best efforts and intentions are cloaked in the poison of sin. And because of this, because of this, no matter how hard we try or how well-intentioned we may be, we cannot bring justice perfectly or without negative repercussion. But there is one who can. There is one who can. I know we're a good portion to our sermon this morning, and we haven't even read the text yet. But the time has come. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42? And we'll be reading verses 1 to 9. Isaiah 42, 1 to 9. Would you read the word of the Lord with me this morning? Here is my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. 
He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens, who who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open the eyes that are blind, to free the captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare before they spring into being. I announce them to you. Thus ends the reading this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, there's a part of me that just wants to read that passage over and over and over and then, like, call it a day. I just want to let those implications of that text just, just sink in. Let the meaning soak in to rest in the words and their meaning until, man, we like, we really get it. I've been, I've been trying my hand around the kitchen a little more with admittedly mixed results so far. But one of the things I've been trying to get better at is, is marinating our meat putting together a nice marinade of of mixed spices and oils and juices and and letting the meat sit in that marinade for a while, for for hours, sometimes overnight, so that the flavor isn't just a coating on the outside, but begins to soak in and permeate the rest of the meat. As I look at the world around me, as I look at the injustice of our history, the injustice of our present, and I understand that there will continue to be injustice into the future, no matter how well-intentioned we may be about fighting it, I need to marinate in verses like this one. Not just read it one time, not just browse it, not just skim it, not just hear it read to me, but to marinate in it. Sit in it. Read it again and again until it breaks past the barriers that I have set up and begins to make its way deep into my heart and mind. I need to sit in the promises of God and read them over and over so that I am not just coated in them, but that the flavor of the text, the richness of the promises that they hold, would soak into my body and would comfort, change, edify, and improve my heart. Now, we aren't going to read this verse another seven times this morning. But I encourage you, when this service is over, to go home. Or for those of you who are streaming with us and are already home, sit down and turn off the TV and read this passage again and again. And then maybe another time after that. This is a fantastic promise that is made to us by God. This is the first of the servant songs found in the book of Isaiah. And though it may be tempting to see ourselves as the servant in the text, we're supposed to be followers of God, right? Like that's the thing, so we're supposed to be his servants. So it's it's fun to kind of like just decide that that that's where we need that's where we need to be. So hey, this is us. We get no, we are not the servant. The servant 
As we continue to read, we know that there is no possible way that we are the servant, but that the servant is actually Jesus Christ. And in this text, we have the mighty contrast between the Cyrus of Isaiah 41 and Jesus of Isaiah 42. Cyrus, the oppressor, the dominator, the incarnation of the idol of man, and then Jesus, the servant of the Lord. Jesus, who is God's alternative to our idols. He is not an abomination. He is a delight. And he stands in direct contrast to Cyrus. Cyrus tramples on people. But when Jesus rose in history, he did not break a bruised reed or quench a faintly burning wick. When Matthew quotes this exact text from Isaiah in the New Testament, he says it was fulfilled when Jesus was healing sick people and that Jesus was quiet about it in Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 to 22. Jesus gave suffering people their lives back. He didn't use his success with them to take advantage of them or promote himself. Jesus had no destructive swagger, no brutal grasping. He is a gentle servant, bringing forth justice to the nations. And now there's an element of of now and not yet taking place in this promise of Jesus bringing justice. The not yet looks to the future. It, It sees the injustice of the world around us today and knows that there needs to be an answer, that there is an answer and that it has been promised. The world is broken and it needs to be made new. And one day, one fantastic, glorious day, it will be. And justice will come. And all of the wrong things in the world will be made right. And our passage this morning encourages us that we can trust that God will keep this promise. In verse 27 that we read in in reference to the prophecy of Cyrus that we saw in, in chapter 41. For in 41, God predicts the rise of Cyrus the Great of Persia as proof of his sovereign deity. The meteoric rise of Cyrus on the human scene proclaimed God's name in history, as we saw in verse 25 of 41. No one saw it coming, as we saw in verse 26 of 41. God alone predicted it, as we see in verse 27 of 41. And in verses 28 and 29 of 41, God summarizes his point, and this is what it is. There is no divine revelation outside of the prophetic tradition culminating in Jesus Christ. And so here in 42, God is saying, See, I have proven my ability to predict and to foretell and to make promises for the future. I foretold. I am the only one that knew about it. I'm the only one that could have done it. I foretold the rising of Cyrus. So trust me when I promise the coming of justice. When I promise the coming of Jesus. And so we look to the future, the not yet of this promise of God. We anxiously await a time when justice will come and there will be no more oppression or hurt or pain or injustice on the earth. But the not yet looks to the second coming of Christ and the now of this promise of God points to the first coming of Christ. Jesus brought justice in his first coming, we may ask. He must have failed, for there is still injustice in our world today. True, he he healed the sick, and that was a form of bringing justice, but people are still sick. So that justice didn't last. So what justice did Jesus, the suffering servant of God, bring the first time? It isn't so much the justice that Jesus brought the first time, as it is the justice that Jesus received. 
When we cry for justice, we are crying for things that have been wrong to be made right. We want evil punished. We want Cyrus to be overthrown. But what happens when we realize that we are Cyrus and it is our evil that needs punishing? The sin that we have living inside us, that we are we're conceived with, born with, that poisons everything, even the good we try to do, that sin is injustice and it demands justice. God demands justice. But if we were to receive the full punishment for our sin, if we were to receive that burning, purifying light of, of justice, we would be consumed. We would be no more. Forever God would be separated from us, those that he has created, those that he loves, and that's not what he wants. That's not his intent, that's not his purpose. And so instead of bringing justice upon us, he brought justice, his justice, the justice that we deserved upon Jesus. He sent his one and only son to become man and to live here among us. He sent Jesus to experience the injustice of the world, but not to be tainted by it. He sent Jesus to live in our filth and surrounded by our sin. And though he lived here and ate with us and drank with us, he was not corrupted by us. Instead, he lived life perfectly. Not once did he sin. Not once did he stray from the path. Not once did his heart create an idol for him to follow. He was perfect. And we hated him for it. We hated him for showing us the depths of our sin, for proving our penchant for sowing injustice. We hated him for the light of his perfection illuminated the mountain of our sin. And so we demanded his death. We had Jesus march up the hill upon which he would die, and as he marched, he carried a cross, the instrument of his death. But more than that, more than that, he carried the sin of the world. Your sin, my sin, all the sin that had ever take place and that would ever would take place. And in this sin, truly, he carried the reason for his death. Jesus is God, man. He could have called forth an army of angels and smote everyone, killing the lot of them, and that would have been justice being served. Instead, justice was given us through Jesus allowing injustice to happen to him. I'm going to say that again, because that's incredibly important. Justice was given to us through Jesus allowing injustice to happen to him. On that cross, Jesus died for the sin that he was carrying, the sin that he had not committed. And in so doing, he paid the price for that sin, the righteous dying for the unrighteous. And in so doing, the righteous Jesus passed his righteousness to the unrighteous, us, who have faith in him. And so justice was brought, not on those who deserved it, but on the one singular person who did not. And so Jesus fulfilled parts of Isaiah 42. He became a covenant for the people. God's promise to love us, to provide for us, to forgive us. Flesh made and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He became a light, or sorry, made flesh and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He became a light to the Gentiles through Jesus. We all have hope. Not just those of Jewish descent, but each and every human being on the planet, no matter your race, 
social, economic, or geographical status, you have hope in Jesus Christ. In Christ, you have been forgiven. In Christ, you are given faith. And this faith opens the eyes of the blind and it sets the prisoner free. I don't know where you are at with your walk with the Lord this morning, but I know and know that regardless of your feelings towards Him, His feelings towards you do not waver. He loves you. He cares for you. He chases after you, pursuing you. He longs for you. And even when we do not act the part, even when we continue to sow injustice, the justice that was brought upon Jesus does not change. His work on the cross is not diminished. He, he will not share glory. I love that aspect of our text this morning. Ah! God's ultimate plan is not spoiled by our intentional or unintentional injustice. Lasting justice has come and lasting justice will come. Remember that God has a plan. And through his servant Jesus, he's bringing his plan down from heaven to reorder human civilization in a beautiful way. God's kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What a wonderful, fantastic, loving, patient, and forgiving God we serve. Amen.